1 Peter 3. Focusing in on just one verse this evening. Verse 7, but of course um, we have to get there. Um, I, when I preach topical messages, um, I still exposit a passage. But something that concerns me about preaching topical messages is that um, we always need to be careful to be sure that what we're learning is in its proper context. And that's why I like preaching through books because I start in chapter 1, verse 1, and by the time I get to chapter 14, um, I am resting upon all of the context that we've already talked about for the past however many months or years, the case may be. When I jump into a passage, I don't quite have that, but um, we will still discuss context a little bit. title of this message, as I speak to husbands this evening, is Husbands, the Wife's Provider. We talked to the men that are fathers in this room this morning and um, spoke to you specifically about your role, and and I trust that um, certainly elements of you as a husband came into play there as well as you thought about how you are an example to your wife. And I trust as well that um, wives, mothers, um, it, it was to some degree a um, encouragement and perhaps an, uh, a um, conviction to you as well in the ways that you can be either supporting your husband or even um, taking that which he, he has asked of you and, and um, furthering your ability to be a good example to your children and um, ensure that you're not having a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do philosophy. And yet this evening we're speaking to husbands and I chose to go to 1 Peter chapter 3 as opposed to maybe something uh, more expected such as uh, Ephesians chapter 5 because there's something... Um, very unique about 1 Peter 3.7 that you don't really find anywhere else expressed quite like this in Scripture as it speaks to husbands. It's a very convicting verse to me because I don't do this as well as I ought. And as I preach this message this evening, um, I uh, am keenly aware, as I regularly am um, preaching as much to myself as anyone else, but um, I'm keenly aware of my shortcomings um, as a husband and um, want to preach this message with the sincerity of a man who is working on this just as much as any other man is. The context of 1 Peter 3 is that of biblical submission. Biblical submission for the sake of testimony and for the sake of obedience to the Word of God. In 1 Peter 2.11, if you want to just take a quick jot over to 1 Peter 2.11, it commands the believers thus, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And this, as the passage bears out, for the sake of testimony. Look at verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
So the idea is that we are to abstain from fleshly lusts in order that we can live good works because as we live good works, we are a manifest testimony to the world around us of God, of who He is, of what He expects, and simply our lives as we live light are a conviction by default to a dark world. Then in verse 13, he says this, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king as supreme, and then it goes on to say, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So the concept is that we abstain from fleshly lusts, that we live out a Christian life that is surrounded or encapsulated or defined by good works, defined by the fruit of the Spirit and the righteousness of God. And one of the things, one of the means by which we particularly exhibit these good works is through our submission to authority. And so he begins here with the king. With the king. The leader of a country that we are to submit ourselves to that authority. He continues in verse 13 to include every level of government. Kings and governors. So those that are in a lesser um, degree of authority, not supreme authority over the land, um, but those who uh, are in a position of God-ordained government. And then in verse 15, Peter says this, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So the principle that Peter is espousing is that our actions as Christians, even apart from words of affirmation or words of protest toward our government, have the ability to silently stand as a testimony of the truth of God's Word. We Americans have a hard time with this concept. We have grown up with what we might call a revolutionary mindset. We have grown up with the anticipation and the expectation that if we don't like something, we're going to put our foot down and we're going to complain until we get our way. The squeaky wheel gets the grease, that kind of an idea. And by God's grace, we have been given a form of government that allows us to legally do that. So it is not anti-biblical for us as Americans to protest and to boycott and those elements of our American society because the government itself has given us the liberty to do so. However, we do need to be careful that, in the, that while we, we freely take advantage of the freedoms and the, the liberties that we've been given by our government, that we ensure that our hearts and our minds are not fixated on rebellion. Because the Scriptures are... are 1 Peter 2 is about submission and how submission is the means by which we can testify of the truth of God's Word. You know, maybe this is a part of the problem between Christians and government today. We have a lot of Christians on the picket lines. We have a lot of Christians that make their Facebook posts. We have a lot of Christians spouting anti-government rhetoric. But we don't have a lot of Christians well-doing. And so while we're espousing our ideas and seeking to assert our rights, our lives are not being the manifest testimony of the truth of God's Word 
that actually puts to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So why can these foolish men be so bold in their anti, I'd say anti-logical, but anti-God rhetoric? Well, because there's no one whose lifestyle is proving them any different. So we're trying to convince a wicked government to see things our way, not because we have demonstrated the way's superiority, the truth, but because we say so and because we have the right and the freedom to bug them until they give us what we want. Maybe that's a part of the problem. But that's a sidelight. Throughout the rest of this chapter, Peter speaks heavily upon the topic of submission. And he uses Christ as the perfect example. So he begins with submission. He says, submit to all men. He says, king is supreme. Then to governors as unto those that um, are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. In verse 17, he says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we're to honor men. We're to honor the king. This is an element of submission and well-doing. In verse 18, he tells servants, what we would call today employees, to be subject to their own masters, what we would call today employers. And so there's that employee-employer relationship, and there's the expectation of servitude or of submission there. And notice why. And he says, not only to the good and the gentle, verse 18, but also to the froward, for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. So even if he's a bad boss, it's thankworthy for us to endure that physical grief with submission that is pleasing to God. So men, as you're at your job and you know they're not treating you right, well, if God has given you that job and you know you're where you're supposed to be, the thankworthy thing for you in that job is to submit yourself to their expectations, submit yourself to their, to their ordinances, because not because it's, it's going to help you keep your job, but because it's thankworthy before God. Submission. Verse 20 exhorts us to bear wrongs patiently. And this is an element of submission. We talk about it in the employer-employee context. We could talk about it in the government-citizen context. We could talk about it in several different contexts, including the parent-child context, that we bear wrongs against us patiently. This verse was very important to me in college as I had a situation where um, I was wronged and um, this verse became really my, my standing stone. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently, verse 20. But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. It is acceptable with God when you patiently submit to wrongdoing. When someone has done you wrong and yet you are willing to take it patiently for the sake of your testimony, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 21 through 25, Peter says, we do this for a reason. And this reason is because this is what Christ did, folks. Look at verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. Who when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not, but committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously who his own self bear our sin in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Aren't you glad Jesus Christ didn't assert his rights? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't go to the Pharisees with a list of grievances? 
Aren't you glad he didn't say, you know, this isn't fair, I'm not going to put up with this? Aren't you glad he didn't sit in a house in Capernaum with a gun across his lap and say, you just try to come in here and you'll have to walk over the dead bodies? I guess it would have probably been more like a sword. Peter tried that, didn't he? In the Garden of Gethsemane. He was ready to take that sword and start chopping people limb from limb. And Jesus said, no, this isn't isn't what we do. Jesus Christ didn't assert His right. He took the wrong. No sin, no guile. And He left us an example that we should follow in His steps. So this is submission. This is the concept of submission. This is the context. And then we step into 1 Peter 3, verse 1, and we see these words. Likewise, likewise, ye wives. Be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. So, this is the parallel. Just as citizens ought to be submissive to their government and and through good works they can put to silence the foolishness uh, and the ignorance of foolish men. Just as servants should be submissive to their masters or employees, employers should be submissive to their employees and in doing so, they can, they can prove the truth without even having to object or having to um, come into conflict. Now Peter says, wives, this is, this is your opportunity to submit to your husbands. In the same way that a man is expected to subject himself to his government, trusting his testimony of good works and his obedience to be a compelling manifestation of the truth of God's word. And in the same way a servant is to be obedient unto his masters, trusting that any wrong or false accusation done against him is seen and known by the Lord. So his entire duty is to manifest the truth of God's word through humility and through submission in that same way that Jesus Christ suffered both in His ministry and then in His death, bearing the shame, bearing the reproach which was undeserved, yet bearing it patiently, wives are to submit to their husbands. And the promise is that in this act of submissive obedience, you will do more to testify of the truth of God's Word than any number of words you could possibly say. And as I was meditating on this this week, ladies, and I, this is, the message isn't for you, but this part is, I guess. How neat that you are in a position where your actions are just directly following the example of Jesus Christ in your marriage. You don't have to be your husband's conscience. You don't have to be the one that holds everything together. You submit and trust the Lord and watch the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ through your submission, and watch the Holy Spirit of God do the work. That's what Jesus did. He said, I'm going to submit to the will of the Father and God's going to do the work and I'm going to Bear what I need to bear to please my Father. And so, verses 1 through 6 are about the wife. Then we get to verse 7, and this is our text this evening. We see this transition again. Likewise, likewise, in the same manner, 
Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So we've seen the duty of a citizen to his government. We've seen the duty of a servant to his master. We've seen the example resting in Jesus Christ. We've seen the duty of a wife to her husband. But lest Peter be remiss, he says, wait a minute, husbands, you have a duty to your wife as well. Remember back in Ephesians, right before the command for wives to be obedient to their husbands and to be in subjection to their husbands, there's that verse that says, submit yourselves one to another. And so there is an element of mutual submission that goes into the marriage relationship. Husbands, it's not just about your wife being subject to you, but it's also about you putting yourself in the place where you are willing to know your wife. And as the the title of our message alludes to, that you are caring for your wife. Let's look at this responsibility together. Husbands, Peter says, dwell with them according to knowledge. That's the first command. You know, it's no secret that men and women think differently. It's no secret that men and women often have different interests and different enjoyments. But husbands, just because you don't necessarily share your wife's interests, or just because you don't naturally think like your wife does, this does not mean you cannot come to understand how she thinks, why she thinks this way, and thus learn how to live with her in a manner that is according to understanding. And this concept is completely countercultural. It really is. We talked this morning about the countercultural way that we perceive fathers as the head of the home, as the leader in all things. That's countercultural. But you know what? It's also countercultural to consider a situation where a husband is actually submitting himself not to his wife's authority, but to an understanding of who his wife is and what she needs. Culture is intent upon pushing this idea that men and women are in two entirely different hemispheres or for all that, two entirely different planets. The old adage, the old concept, the old book, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. The idea that literally we are, from, we are worlds apart. Men are absolutely unable to understand women and are therefore not expected to understand women. That's what culture says, Right? Rather, men are expected simply to let women be women and aimlessly perform those tasks that, for whatever reason, women seem to like. And so we hold their purse while they're in the lotion shop. And so we get her flowers on her special days. And so we do whatever elements of life and existence you figured out concerning her. And you've just got little snippets of how you figured things out and that's what you do. In fact, I was looking at a post online not too long ago, and it struck me how early in life we begin pushing this concept that women simply can't be understood. Consider this with me. 
It's a book written for a school project. How to Understand Women by Lem, Sem, something like that. I don't know who it is. How to Understand Women. So this is his great theses, everything he's learned on how to understand women. You turn the page and you get this. This book is all about understanding women. Best-selling author. He's pretty proud of himself. This, this is everything that, that, that the world knows about understanding women. And his conclusion is this. You can't. The end. The end, right? And, we, and you can tell that, that this is fairly young handwriting on these pages. And this is a young man who has learned something from a very early age. And what he's learned from a very early age is that you simply can't understand women, so stop trying. 1 Peter 3, 7, the first thing stated is, Husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. What Peter is saying here is that husbands have the privilege to reside together. Notice that's what that word means in the Greek, that word dwell. To reside together. To dwell with them according to knowledge. To reside together. Not to live in a world of best guesses and minimal appeasement. Rather that the husband would be consumed with understanding who his wife is and what she needs. And I'm going to keep saying that throughout this sermon. What she needs. See, because you are your wife's provider. Your wife is stepping out in faith enough that she is willing to submit herself to you, husband. But the inherent concept surrounding submission is that you are not doing for yourself what you are asking someone else to do for you. You are not stepping out and asserting yourself. And so because you're not asserting yourself, you need the person that you're submitting to to be for you what you're refusing to be for yourself. And so husbands, your wife is seeking to submit herself to you as unto the Lord, to be subject to you, and to allow her good works and her good testimony to shine forth as that manifest token of the Word of God. But that makes your wife vulnerable. That means she needs you to provide for her. She needs you. She is dependent upon you. And if a wife is being what she ought to be, then she is in fact dependent upon her husband. And husbands, we cannot abdicate the responsibility that we have to fulfill that need in her life. Because that is what she's doing. She is submitting herself as unto the Lord as best she can. But in doing so, she's making herself vulnerable. And you need to fill that need. The husband should be consumed with understanding his wife. How she thinks, what she likes, what she doesn't like, what makes her uncomfortable, what makes her happy. And then we do those things. We men who are football fans could perhaps understand the concept this way. Right now, the NFL is an extremely quarterback-centric league. Typically speaking, a team finds a franchise quarterback and then spends its time and its effort building the rest of the team around that quarterback's particular set of abilities. And if you were to speak to a lineman or a wide receiver or a member of the offense, they would 
tell you that a portion of their success at their position will come from how well they understand their quarterback and can adapt their playing style to their quarterback's playing style. They better understand him, and the better they understand him, the better they will work together and the better the team will do. So they learn that quarterback's tendencies. They learn what he likes and what he dislikes, his reactions, his expectations, because that's how a team sport works. The success of the team rises and falls upon the ability of key players to understand each other and to work together, to adapt to one another's playing styles in order that everybody becomes better. Men, your ability to understand and serve your wife in much the same way is absolutely essential to the success of your marriage and to your spiritual success. Think about it this way with me, men. Your wife is commanded by God to absolutely submit to you. Depending upon your wife's character and her upbringing, this may be easy for her, this may be difficult for her. The command for her to be this way is regardless of how you treat her, regardless of your response to it, and regardless of your personality. But how much easier would it be for our wives to do their part of submission if we did our part of dwelling with them according to knowledge? How much easier will it be for her to be the wife God has commanded her to be if you act toward her the way God commands you to act? Being the man of the house has nothing to do with you getting what you want because nobody can say otherwise because you're the top dog. Being the man of the house has nothing to do with your wife making sure you're comfortable and happy in your home. That may be her goal. That may be her desire in submission. But that is not... You don't, you don't sit and rest on that privilege. Certainly these are things your wife should strive for. But when you think about your privileges and responsibilities as a husband... These should not be all the things that come to your mind. Being the man of the house, as we talked about this morning, being that leader and that leader by example means that you're doing everything in your power to facilitate godliness in the lives of your wife and family. And if you desire to lead your wife into godliness as her husband, as her provider, as her protector, the best thing you can do to help her fulfill her expectations is to Make it easy for her to submit to you. And you can do this by living with her according to knowledge. You know, there are some things that my wife likes and there are some things my wife doesn't like. And slowly but surely, we'll, be, we'll have been married for six years this Saturday. And slowly but surely, I'm figuring those things out. One of them came up not too long ago. I don't think she'd mind me sharing this with you. I'm from Colorado and I say... I say this is a pop. She's from Georgia. She says this is a Coke. Becky is confirming that this is indeed a Coke. Well, I get a little confused when she calls it a Coke, but that's fine. I know what she's talking about. She rolls her eyes when I call it a pop. She says pop is my granddad. It's not a drink. However, one day... One of my little girls called it pop. 
And for whatever reason, my wife had a real problem with that. She doesn't know why. I don't know why. But it was a problem to her that her daughters were calling it pop. And we, she, she said, I don't know why this is making me so angry, but I just don't like this. Now, I could have done the, the I'm going to assert my right thing and said, well, but it's pop, so that's the way it's going to be. Get used to it. But you know what? I know something that bothers my wife. And I'm not going to perpetuate something in my children that bothers my wife. I'm going to dwell with my wife according to knowledge. So I think my girls are going to grow up calling it soda. And that's just the way it's going to have to be. But either way, it really doesn't matter. And so why should I push something in the lives of my daughters that troubles my wife? That's a silly example. We could heighten the example. We could, we could up the ante. We could get to areas of her um, life and of her daily routine um, that bother her, that I'm learning about and trying to help her with. And some of it is just her having to get over some things. And some of it is me having to know her and me having to get over some things. And some of it is us having to meet in the middle. And that's what a marriage is and, and, and such. But the, the fact of the matter is men. When we can meet the needs of our wives, when we can elevate them to a position of particular honor, we are fulfilling the expectation of God. When we are negligent in meeting the needs of our wives, when they are responding to the will of God by submitting themselves and placing themselves in our care, We are wronging our wives. And by extension, we are disobeying Christ. And this is what Peter says as he continues. Notice verse 7, the next phrase. He says, Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Husband, do you know that your wife's relationship with the Lord is heavily dependent upon her subjection to your authority? that the degree to which she is right with the Lord is dependent upon the degree to which she is willing to submit herself to you. Have you ever thought about how hard you might be making it for your wife to serve God? How hard it is for her to serve God on a daily basis because you're making it so hard for her to submit herself to you? Because you're not treating her in such a way that you are providing for her and you're protecting for her and you're meeting her needs? The Bible tells us that the wife is the weaker vessel. Now, by this, Peter is not attempting to be chauvinistic and imply that women are incapable or that women um, have no ability to do things on their own. We know that that's not the case. We've seen that in society, even in 1 Corinthians when we were preaching. Paul was advocating that women not get married. He wasn't advocating that because women are incapable. Certainly they are capable. He was saying for this present distress, women, if you can at all help it, don't get married. Serve the Lord with every ounce of your being, with every fiber of what you have. Because women are capable. But men, the fact that women are capable is not the point in a marriage. Because they are to submit themselves to you. Peter was married. Did you know that? Peter 
I believe the Lord particularly wrote this inspired Scripture through Peter and not Paul because Peter was married. And as a married man, this man was writing from experience. He knew the Scriptures. There's little doubt that Peter had read Proverbs 31. He knew that the virtuous woman of the Bible was a woman of strength. She was a woman of industry. She was a woman of initiative. But what Peter is saying here is that as the weaker vessel, they are to be treated with gentleness, with care, with respect. Men, have you ever noticed that your wives are more emotional than you? Do you know that sometimes my wife just needs a good cry? I have never experienced needing a good cry. I have cried several times. I don't think it's a sign of weakness for a man to cry. I have cried before. I'm not afraid to cry, but I've never had a day where I say, oh, I just need a good cry and I'll be fine. I've heard that before out of my wife's mouth. I just need a good cry and I'll be fine. That doesn't register with me. I don't understand it necessarily. But I can understand her need, even though I can't necessarily understand her compulsion. She is more emotional than I am. She is a weaker vessel. Certainly, the argument can be successfully made that Peter is speaking in a physical sense here. My wife and most women are not as strong as men physically. Women are naturally more delicate physically, weaker physically, and should be treated with a level of care and respect that shows appreciation for the way God has made them. But I believe Peter is speaking much more on a spiritual and emotional level here. And particularly, spiritual that the wife's spiritual life is affected far greater by the husband than the husband's spiritual life is affected by the wife. May I say that again? The wife's spiritual life, her relationship with God, is, far, is, is affected or, uh, far more by the husband's spiritual life than the husband's spiritual life is affected by the wife's spiritual life. And so, even if we disregard the emotional aspect of women and the physical aspect of women, men, spiritually speaking, our wives are the weaker vessel. They may be more in tune to spiritual things, and I believe, by and large, women are more in tune to spiritual things. But as a wife, she is submitting herself to you. And this is a big deal. This means, husbands, that the responsibility that you have to dwell with your wife according to knowledge is not inherently about you having a right standing with your wife. But it's more about your wife having a right standing with God. And by extension, you're disobeying God's command when you're not helping your wife be a spiritual success. So you give honor to her. You place her in high esteem as unto the weaker vessel. And this is the warning that we see at the final part of this verse. Men, there's a warning attached to this command. Notice this last phrase. As being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. That word literally meaning to cut off or to frustrate. Men, you and your wife are co-heirs in grace. Now, first let's talk about what that does not mean. We know this does not mean that you and your wife are codependent upon one another for salvation. We know this cannot be the case, for the Scriptures testify time and again that each man is responsible for his own sin and his own choice concerning Jesus Christ. 
We know this does not mean that a man or a woman is completely dependent upon their spouse as it relates to their walk with God. For even this passage bears out that regardless of the attitude of the husband, the wife ought to live right with God and her life of good works can be a manifest testimony to the husband. So this is not to say that a a wife cannot be a godly woman if her husband's not godly, nor is it saying that a husband cannot be a godly man if his wife is not godly. So what does it mean that they are co-heirs to the grace of life? Well, in our first Corinthian series, we considered Paul's words of advice that if possible, Christians remain unmarried. We noted Paul's warning that those who are married would have trouble in the flesh. It's chapter 7, verse 28. We stated that Paul was not inherently saying that marriage is trouble as much as saying that with marriage comes earthly burdens and earthly priorities which an unmarried person doesn't have to contend with. An unmarried person has flexibility. An unmarried person has a reduction of burdens that as a married man, I have long forgotten what it's like. I have long forgotten what it's like to not have a a wife to care for and to have to consider my family in my decisions. I know that there was a time and I can think back to some of the things I did, but I can't even really reproduce the feeling anymore. And you know, now that I've got kids, it's a very natural transition into children, but I can't even really remember, reproduce all the feelings of my wife and I saying, let's just take a weekend. Let's just go. I mean, even just let's go get ice cream is an entirely different ballgame nowadays. We also stated in these verses, as we were in 1 Corinthians 7, that they do not mean a married person can't be effective in serving the Lord, but that the manner in which he is able to serve the Lord is inherently different after he gets married or she. What Peter presents here, I think, is one of the things that changes. Now, as husband and wife, your lives are bound up in one another. You are physically one flesh blessed by God to spend your days together serving one another and supporting one another, but you are also spiritually bound, co-heirs on this journey that is salvation, so that your spouse's spiritual effectiveness and spiritual joy and spiritual potency is in fact affected by you. Your spiritual lives are in fact bound up in one another. So that your spiritual walk can either be a motivation or an anchor to your spouse's spiritual walk. And as Peter completes his thoughts at the end of verse 7, he lays out this warning to husbands. Husbands, a disregard for the spiritual responsibility that you have to honor your wife as the weaker vessel, to dwell with your wife according to knowledge, to know your wife, to, to facilitate her submission directly affects your own walk with God. So that regardless of your own personal walk with God, you will fall short of spiritual effectiveness, particularly in prayer, he says here, if you are not honoring the spiritual responsibility that you have toward your wife. If you are not honoring the spiritual responsibility you have to consider her 
needs and to meet her needs. And I fear that we Christian men can go wrong sometimes in that we dedicate ourselves to the things that we're going to do for God and we do so at the expense of our marriage. And when we do that, we're not honoring our wives as unto the weaker spiritual vessel. We're not dwelling with our wives according to knowledge as unto the spiritual needs that she has. And Peter warns us that in doing so, of course, we know that if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. And our prayers can be hindered, frustrated, cut off, that word means. So husbands, let's apply this evening. Number one, husband, be a partner, be a helpmeet, not a roommate. Be a partner, not a roommate. Marriage is not intended to be two separate lives lived under the same roof. Our culture is rapidly drifting toward that idea. Marriage is not simply a civil union in order to take advantage of federal tax credits. Marriage is a spiritual union sealed by a spiritual covenant and accompanied by spiritual responsibilities. You don't want the spiritual responsibilities? Well, if you're married, too bad, you've got them. If you're unmarried and you don't want the spiritual responsibilities that come with marriage, then don't get married. We have these thoughts and ideals about marriage and all that marriage is, and and it's true, marriage is a wonderful thing. But it comes with spiritual responsibilities, folks. There, it ups the ante in our spiritual lives. It changes the entire dynamic of your relationship with God. Husbands, don't allow your wife to remain a mystery. Don't sleep next to her every night but not know her. Don't be satisfied with the cliche that tells us women are unsolvable. Solve that mystery. Know your wife. Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Communicate with her. Know what she loves. Know what she hates. Know her weaknesses. Know her strengths. And don't try to tease her about her weaknesses. And don't try to egg her on about those things that she hates. Be gentle with her. Reject the modern idea that you and your wife can have two separate lives and ought to have two separate lives. Separate groups of friends. Separate ambitions. Thrive in your wife's company. Dedicate yourself to understanding her needs. I'm torn apart every morning. I'm riding that bus. It's actually a van that I ride because I take care of special needs kids, which means the radio can be on. Joy. And they're listening to modern country or modern rock or whatever it is they're listening to that morning to keep them awake, the bus driver that is. And they have these talking sessions in between their music sessions and... It boggles my mind when they talk about issues regarding marriage. It's disgusting how husbands and wives in the world treat each other. They don't know each other. They each have separate groups of friends. They each have separate salaries and separate bank accounts. They don't trust one another. They don't know one another. They don't appreciate one another. They don't serve one another. Makes you wonder why they even got married to begin with. That's the way it is out there, folks. And that's not what God has instituted. 
That is not marriage. Husband, be a partner, not a roommate. Second, husband, wrap your happiness up in your wife, not yourself. I apologize for not highlighting this one. Wrap your husband up in your... Excuse me. Wrap your happiness up in your wife, not yourself. You know, it's unfortunate that men particularly in Christian culture, have a tendency to take advantage of their God-given position of authority. Men in Christian culture have a a unique um, awareness of their authority and a um, unique awareness of the expectations of submission. And unfortunately, oftentimes when this is preached from the pulpit, submission is preached without without the men's responsibility being preached as well. The wife responsibility is hit far greater than the husband's. This ought not be so. Like a leader that uses his authority and power for his own gain instead of the good of the people he serves, we men can succumb to the temptation of allowing the expectations of a wife's biblical submission to foster in our lives laziness or apathy or disregard. But just as a leader is put into a position of authority and power, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of those whom he governs and those whom he serves, so too the authority that God has given you, husband, in the marriage and in the home, was never intended by God to be a license for you to do what you want, but rather liberty to effectively guide your wife and children into godliness and piety. God is entrusting you with the soul of your wife and your children. And that is a great responsibility. So while there are, without question, benefits to being head of the home, those benefits really pale in comparison to the spiritual and physical responsibilities that God has placed upon the husband in the marriage. And what we see in Scripture is that as the weaker vessel, your wife has the distinct advantage of being a follower and not a leader. She has the distinct advantage of letting you make the tough decisions. She has the distinct advantage of letting you be the representative to the family. She has the distinct advantage of letting you lead and she just has to submit. That's hard enough. She doesn't need both responsibilities. Furthermore, God has charged you with the task of honoring your wife, treating her as something precious, valuable, and worthy. And as you treat her this way, her life will be blessed with a sense of security and a sense of fulfillment that is, for lack of better description, divine. And not only will she be blessed, but you will be blessed in many ways as well. Her job of biblical submission will be easier God will honor you for obeying His Word. Your marriage gets better. Your family gets better. Everything gets better. But men, it starts with you. So husbands, it's time to stop this idea that our true happiness and fulfillment is found in that which we do when our wife is not around. And we need to begin finding our true happiness and fulfillment in our wife's happiness and fulfillment. For in doing so, we also please the Lord. And what more could we ask for, men? Our fulfillment need not be in that which we do for ourselves, but in that which we do for the Lord. And if we're doing it for the Lord, then we're doing it for our wives as well.
Third and final point. Husbands, tirelessly facilitate your wife's spiritual responsibility of biblical submission. I didn't say demand your wife's spiritual responsibility of biblical submission. I said facilitate your wife's spiritual responsibility of biblical submission. This is one of the benefits we spoke to in our last point, but this is essential. Don't ward 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6 through 6 over your wife as if she's some sort of object created for your pleasure. Women were created for the man. There's no question there. The Scriptures say it several times. But the task that God has given to wives to submit to us as their husbands is not an easy thing to do, men. Well, why can't you just submit? It's not that easy, men. I think most of us know that in this room. By God's grace, she's not alone in her efforts. She has the Holy Spirit to help her. She can walk in the Spirit and find victory, but she also has you to help her. Husband, have you ever thought about whether you're a help or a hindrance to your wife's efforts to submit herself to you? Does your daily interaction with your wife leave her desiring to submit? Feeling empowered to do so through your gentle and caring leadership? Meeting her needs? Providing and protecting her? Or is submission kind of a game for you? Do you find some sort of sinful pleasure in seeing just how far you can push your wife's submission before she cracks? Before she starts nagging? Before she just breaks down and says, I'm, I'm finished for the day? Let me ask you this, husbands. The Scriptures tell wives to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, and then it says, as Christ is the head of the church. Husband, did you know that Jesus Christ is your head? That your wife follows you, but she follows Christ through you? That you are to be following Christ, and she's to be following you, and therefore following Christ through you? And that your head is Christ? Now let me ask you this. If God acted toward you the way you act toward your wife, how submissive would you be to God? How easy would it be for you to submit to God if God treated you the way you treat your wife? Just let that sink in for a minute. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. It's not a difficult thing to submit to Jesus. We all know that God makes it easy. He not only empowers us to do His will, but He has told us exactly what His will is. The hardest part of submission to God is not God's dealings with us, but our own selfishness. Now imagine how your wife must feel when she is not only fighting her own selfishness and her own desire to assert herself, but also she has to contend with a husband who's making submission difficult through his words, through his actions, or through his attitude. Men, 
you ought to be able to expect that your wife will submit to you as God's Word commands her to do. But she ought to expect your help because you're on the same team. Questions as we close for our husbands this evening. Husband, how are you doing at dwelling with your wife according to knowledge? Are you and your wife partners or just roommates? Have you taken the time to truly know your wife? Husband, where does your happiness rest? Are you so caught up in your own priorities that you're failing to honor the weaker vessel that God has entrusted unto you for guidance and protection? Have you ever sought your wife's happiness above your own priorities? Or has your wife's happiness always been as a consequential byproduct of something that you've been pursuing? Husband, are you helping your wife submit? Are you an easy leader to follow? Do you make your expectations clear? Do you facilitate her needs to to submit? Or is she constantly chasing a moving target, wondering what she will see next and how you'll respond to it? We've all heard it before, marriage is a two-way street. Success doesn't fall on the shoulders of just one gender. Success is not just dependent upon a husband any more or less than success is just dependent upon the wife. But it is an unfortunate mark of spiritual immaturity in Christian society and culture that we have put a greater emphasis upon the wife's role than upon the husband's role. Because really it ought to be the other way around. Husbands, you are the head of your wife. That means you bear the responsibility of your marriage before God. And husbands, let's be good stewards of that responsibility. Let's pray together.